Please be seated. And good morning. If there is ever a time when we think God should get with our program, it's when we're angry. Jonah is a great example of how we tend to get it wrong, and, and his story is especially relevant because it directly contrasts God's approach to anger with our approach to anger. Most of you know the story. God's wrath was stirred up against the Ninevites because of their wickedness. God was about to judge them in 40 days. But he graciously appointed an Israelite named Jonah to go and to to warn them, to tell them about this impending judgment. But Jonah didn't care for that plan very much. Jonah tried to flee from God's assignment to him by getting on a ship headed for another place called Tarshish. But God saw to it that Jonah got tossed out of that ship and fed to a big fish for three days. And that finally then convinced Jonah after he got spit up to go to Nineveh and to do as God required of him. But he did it very, very reluctantly. After Jonah had walked through just one-third of the city of Nineveh proclaiming this impending judgment, the people of the city and the king repented of their wickedness in sackcloth and ashes. Again, Jonah didn't care for this outcome. In chapter 3, verse 10, it says, When God saw their deeds that they had turned from their wicked way, God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. In the next verse, Jonah 4, verse 1 says, This turn of events greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. And the conversation that occurred at that point between Jonah and God is very, very telling about the nature of our anger. It says, Jonah 4, verse 2, Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was was this not what I said when I was still in my own country? <laughs> in other words, Jonah's saying, God, I told you that they might repent if we told them about this judgment. And that's not good. He says, therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. (laughs) Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. And you think your kids are melodramatic. The Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? There's a good question. Do you have good reason to be angry? Jonah did not like Ninevites at all. The Ninevites were enemies of Israel. And by Jonah's reckoning, they certainly did not deserve a second chance. Oh, sure, it was great for God to be forbearing with Jonah and and with his people, Israel. But it was intolerable for God to treat those wicked, nasty Ninevites with the same forbearance that he had displayed to Israel over and over and over again. Jonah wanted God's anger to be like his own anger. Vindictive, unrelenting, self-exalting, uninterested in the well-being of the offender. 
Amazingly, after Jonah quoted God's own declaration about himself that God made to Moses in Exodus 34, about his forbearance and his loving kindness and his eagerness to forgive, Jonah then said that knowing that God's grace and mercy and compassion and forgiveness could actually apply to people like the Ninevites made life no longer worth living. Beloved, we may not be quite that melodramatic, but that's what we do. We want God's anger to be like ours, except when it applies to us. We want to choose the targets of His anger for Him so that we don't get harmed, but those who have harmed us do. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about God's anger, and the passage that we just looked at in Exodus 34 is absolutely the most foundational, the most seminal declaration of God's character in the whole Bible. Not just God's anger, but God's whole character. Now, it's not certainly... Uh, That's not everything that we need to know about God. This is. But it is is the most concise statement of who God is that you're going to find anywhere in the Bible. Moses said, show me your glory and show me your ways. And that's what God did. This list of attributes is not merely a list of things that God feels. It is a declaration of who God is, and therefore of how He acts. So the first and most foundational thing that God tells us about His anger in that passage is that He is slow to anger. Even though God is holy and hates sin, it is fundamental to His character that He does not act on His anger against our sin quickly. The phrase, slow to anger, that shows up first right there, occurs 14 times in the Bible. Nine of those occurrences are talking about God's anger, and five of them are talking about ours. Every time that phrase shows up in the Old Testament with God as the subject, which is all but one of those 14 occurrences, uh, I mean, they're all in the Old Testament, except for the one in James. Every time it shows up in in the Old Testament, the wording is exactly the same. Exactly the same. And that should be a very strong indication to us that all of those other occurrences point back to the first one in Exodus 34. The other five instances, there are nine that apply to God. The other five instances that are about men's anger uh, are all based on what is true of God. Four of those five are in Proverbs, and the fifth is in James. All right, so the first thing we know about God's anger is that he acts on his anger slowly, not quickly. Another thing God tells us about his anger is that his anger, when directed toward his people, is temporary, not permanent. Those who refuse to honor him as God will suffer his anger Eternally, But we who have been made the objects of his grace and compassion still sin. And we do make ourselves the object of his anger at times. And God says he will not leave sin unpunished. But he delights in pouring out his steadfast covenant love on his people. 
Now look at these two verses from Psalms. Psalm 30, verses 4 and 5, two passages. Psalm 30, verses 4 and 5. Sing praise to the Lord, you His godly ones. So we know who He's talking to, His people. And give thanks to His holy name, for His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Psalm 103, great psalm of David, where he calls himself to to bless the Lord. Verse 8, he says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. That's an exact quote of a portion of Exodus 34. And then he says, verse 9, He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. He has not given us what we deserved. And then he goes on to say, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he separated our sins from us. In both those passages, he's talking to God's people. In fact, the verse before Psalm 103, verse 8, says that he's talking to Moses and the people of Israel, his covenant people. When God pours out his anger toward those whom he has made the recipients of his unconditional covenant promises, that anger is guaranteed to be temporary. Okay, so God is slow to anger. Are you? God's anger is temporary. Is yours? Have you ever heard a Christian say, I can never forgive what that person did? How grievous is that statement in the eyes of the God who is not only slow to anger, but who is quick to forgive. Let's talk about how God assesses our anger. The first thing to note is that he says that when we are quick to anger, that's foolishness. Proverbs 14.29 says, He who is slow to anger has great understanding, great wisdom, But he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. A quick temper also leads to sin, not to righteousness. Proverbs 29.22 says, An angry man stirs up strife. A hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. And then James says that our anger does not measure up to God's righteousness. James 1.19 and 20, This you know, my beloved brethren, But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Now those verses are not saying that there's no such thing as godly anger in men. They're saying that godly anger is rare in sinful men like us. So we must always view our anger with a very high level of skepticism and act accordingly. It means that when we feel anger coming on, we have to be very slow to speak and very slow to act on that anger because it's probably not coming from particularly godly motives. At best, it's coming from motives that are mixed, that are impure, that are compromised and that don't fully match up with the character of God. As my brother Bob Richardson said this morning, Jesus is the only one who gets the character of God 100% right. It means that when, that, that when we must express anger toward a fellow fallen human being, we'd better take every opportunity first 
to prayerfully consider our own sin and our own motives before we speak or act. And here's something we don't often consider that I think is critical to what keeps our anger from achieving the righteousness of God. Why is it that our anger does not measure up in righteousness to God's? A few minutes ago, I showed you the slide of Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, with just one of God's attributes highlighted, slow to anger. But there's something inherently messed up about that slide. It's not the words that are messed up, it's the highlighting. How many of those attributes that God declares to be true of him are true of him at any given moment? All of them. The answer is always all of them. At our Wednesday morning discussion this week, my dear brother Phil raised a point that helped me understand what's lacking in our anger and why our anger does a really lousy job of reflecting God's anger. He's talking about the doctrine that's called the simplicity of God. It's one of the least understood doctrines of Scripture but it's critical to the issue we're talking about right now. And by the way, if I were the one naming doctrines, I would have called it something else because to me it's a whole lot simpler to be one thing at one time than it is to be a bunch of things at one time. But the the doctrine of the simplicity of God, don't worry about the label, think of it this way. God is all that he is all the time. And that's huge. It's part of the immutability of God, the fact that he does not change. When God is angry, he is still at the same time compassionate and gracious, abounding in loving kindness and truth, and is therefore quick to forgive and to restore. The cross of Jesus Christ is the most amazing outworking of this reality about God. God's harshest act of judgment, the most uncompromising expression of His righteous hatred of our sin in all of human history, was at the cross. When He forsook His own Son and placed upon Him the full weight and the eternal penalty for our sin. But the cross was at the same time the most uncompromising act of love and grace and mercy and compassion and covenant faithfulness that creation will ever behold. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? God is all that He is at all times. But we're not. And there's the rub when it comes to our supposedly righteous indignation. I don't know about you guys, but I can barely walk and chew gum at the same time. If I'm driving in a car and I'm in an intense conversation with other people in the car, somebody else had better point out where my turn is or where I'm going to go right past it. Every time. My wife can testify. And when I'm really angry, that pretty much sums up all that I am at that moment. I'm not loving and merciful and compassionate and forgiving and righteous when I'm angry. I'm just angry. And it's not until my anger subsides that any of those other aspects of godliness has a good chance of once again being manifested in me. That is a huge gaping distinction between God and me that is the most fundamental reason my anger cannot and does not achieve the righteousness of God. 
And I'd hazard to guess that the same is at least often true of you guys, since we all share the same struggle against our sinful flesh. And by the way, the more we put on Christ, the more mature you become in Christ. One of the beautiful manifestations of that is the more the fullness of the character of God becomes demonstrated in you at any given instant. All right, I'm going to skip a little bit because I'm short on time, but let's talk about consequences, the ironic consequences of being quick to anger. First, our anger accomplishes the opposite of its intended purpose. Proverbs 14, 17 says, A quick-tempered man acts foolishly, and a man of evil devices is hated. Is that what you're trying to accomplish when you're angry? Do you want to be hated? Proverbs 15, 1, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. In Proverbs 29, 22, An angry man stirs up strife, and a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. When you express anger to another person, what are you trying to accomplish? Well, I think it's safe to say that most of the time you're hoping to make things better and not worse. You're hoping to forcefully persuade that other person that he needs to fix what he's doing wrong so that you and other people will be better off. And maybe you're even concerned a little bit about him. But is that how God says our anger works? Do any of those verses give us reason to believe that an angry response to a perceived wrong is going to prompt the offender to repent and fix the wrong? Quite the opposite. Those verses all say that anger just stirs up more anger. It makes things worse, not better. What do you call a guy... No, let me change the question. What do you say to a guy who tries to use gasoline to put out a fire? You say, well done. Think about that. <laughs> when you're trying to figure out how to address a wrong done by another person, does it make sense to take an approach that God has already told you will fail? But that's what we do. God says our anger is nothing but fuel for the very fire that we say we want to put out. The next irony First, our anger accomplishes the opposite of what we intend. Second, our anger does far more damage than we intend. Proverbs 29.8 says, Scorners set a city aflame, but wise men turn away anger. And that verse reminds me of what James has to say about the power of the tongue. He says, The tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. We think our angry words are going to be like a little flame that just singes a few hairs and gets the other guy's attention. So he'll be convinced he needs to change. But the flame that our anger ignites spreads and lays waste to the lives of people around us the lives of the person we're seeking to correct, and to our own life. Our anger accomplishes the opposite of what it is intended to accomplish. It does far more damage than we intend, and it is far, far harder to fix the damage than we expect. Proverbs eighteen nineteen says, A brother offended 
is harder to be won than a strong city. And contentions are like the bars of a castle. It is easier to conquer a fortified city than it is to repair the damage that an angry, contentious spirit does to a precious relationship. And rarely, rarely does our anger damage only one relationship at a time. I know without a doubt that many in this room have done harm to relationships with their angry words that they would do anything to undo. I know that's true for me. But beloved, once you burn down a forest, it takes a very long time for it to come back. Fortunately for all of us, God has the greenest thumb of all. Another irony is that, actually we've talked about irony, let's talk about benefits. The benefits of being slow to anger. On the other side of this equation, when we actually rule our anger and submit it to God, instead of letting it rule us, good things happen. Proverbs 16.32 says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he rules his spirit than he who captures a city. I like the contrast between that verse and the one we just looked at in verse 18.19. Uncontrolled anger does damage that's harder to overcome than conquering a city, a fortified city. But the man who controls his anger is more powerful than mighty kings who capture fortified cities. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. The man who is slow to anger accomplishes great and mighty things for God in the lives of the people around him. And Proverbs 19.11 says, A man's godly self-control over his anger is his glory. Now I want to get real practical for a little while on a couple of different points. And the first is, what do you do in light of all of this, of what God says about his anger and what we see in his word about ours? What do you do when you're angry with another person? The first, and I think the most important answer to that question is, in most cases, you do nothing. 1 Corinthians 13 says, Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. It does not brag and is not arrogant. does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. If that's godly love, then most of the time, the correct approach when we are wronged is to do nothing except hand it over to God. Most of the time. An angry rebuke is supposed to be the exception, not the rule. Most of the time, love is not provoked and does not take into account the wrong suffered. And that's it. That's as far as it has to go. So if you find yourself angry (laughs) a large part of the time over a great many different offenses, the problem is with you. It should be very clear to you that you are not loving others as God and Christ has loved you. You're not loving others as God's love demands and as God's Word commands. Second point, what to do when you're angry with another person is be slow to speak and slow to anger. 
James 1, 19 and 20. This you know, my beloved brethren. He's talking to Christians. But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. If you must do something about your anger, if you have taken it into account because you believe it needs to be taken into account, don't act on it quickly. Remember, God is simple. Everything He does is balanced and perfect, and it's the same all the time. It reflects all of His character. He's the same all the time. You, on the other hand, are not simple. (laughs) You're a complicated mess, just like me. So do nothing about your anger until you've taken it to the Lord in prayer and sorted out whether it is legitimate or not. And as you do, think hard about whose well-being you're actually seeking with your correction. Are you really more concerned about honoring God than about protecting and exalting yourself? Are you really more concerned with the offender's well-being than you are with your own? Jesus certainly was when he went to the cross. Of course, there will be times when you don't have the time or the option to carefully consider your own motives as much as you would like to. There are times when a response has to happen right now. Those times should be few and far between. And even when they happen, you can always pray before you respond, even if it's a quick prayer. That's a really good habit to get into and one that I need to develop further in myself. And instead of just praying about a confrontation before you start speaking, consider praying with the offender before you say another word. That would go a very long way toward tempering anger with godliness. All right, most of the time, do nothing. Don't take it into account. When you must act, be slow to speak and slow to anger. And if you must correct, correct directly and correct lovingly. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6 says, Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Now, open rebuke doesn't mean public rebuke. It means direct, forthright rebuke. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Don't try to make the sin less important or less damaging than it is. Don't beat around the bush. If you have to correct, be forthright. Be straightforward. Don't be so concerned about the damage you might do to friendship that you're unwilling to get the real issue out on the table. Some people take 20 minutes to finally get around to the correction. That's not my problem. That's not, it's not, I don't suffer from that particular ailment. Just speak the truth in love. Rebuke and love in verse 5 are synonymous. The assumption is that your words of correction are ultimately intended to bless, not to curse, that they have the offender's well-being firmly at heart. And get this, your rebuke does not conceal your love reveals your love. You ever think in those terms that rebuking someone reveals love? If it doesn't, don't do it. And then, this is a really big one, don't talk to anyone else until you talk to the offender. We have a real problem with this. (laughs) Matthew 18, verses 15 to 18, 
Jesus said, if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. That's step one. Nothing comes before that. And then, if he listens to you, you're done. You've won your brother. If he doesn't, go find another trusted brother, one or two, who can bear witness to the wrong and then take them with you to talk to him. And then it goes through a process that you pray never happens. At the end of that process is you set him aside, not to destroy him, but to shame him to repentance so he'll come back. That passage really isn't complicated. Why do we so often disregard it? The most useful damage control that you can do when you believe somebody has wronged you or wronged someone else at a level that requires correction is to talk to the offender first. Now, let me address a couple of expected objections before I go further. First, I don't believe this passage or any other passage is saying that it's wrong to talk to your husband or your wife or to another trusted friend, brother or sister, if you're not sure that your complaint against someone else is actually worthy of correction. Sometimes it helps for us to get input from a wise brother or sister before deciding whether it's appropriate to comfort someone. But guys, this is an instance in which the proverb that says there is wisdom in many counselors does not apply. You keep it as narrow as you possibly can in terms of who knows about the wrong. And yes, there are certain very rare exceptions when it may not be appropriate to talk to the offender first such as if you've learned that a serious crime is involved and telling the person who committed the crime might give him a way out of the justice that is due to him. And of course, in cases of child abuse, the law demands that the authorities be notified. But guys, those are the exceptions. Let's please not miss this exceedingly critical principle because we're bogged down in rare exceptions. The principle holds. Better is open rebuke than love concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. In the vast majority of cases, there is something very subtle and very wrong about talking first to someone other than the person you have believed committed the offense. If you're proceeding in your relationship with the offender as if nothing was wrong, but you're talking to other people about his offense... That is inherently deceptive. The wounds of a friend are faithful. The kisses of an enemy are deceptive. When the Bible uses words like friend and enemy, it's looking at actions, not feelings. When you, in effect, kiss the person against whom you have a complaint while you're talking about him behind his back to other people, you're acting as a deceptive enemy, not a friend. You with me? And when you lovingly and openly rebuke that brother or sister before talking to anyone else, you're acting as a faithful friend. Within the last week, two brothers whom I love and trust came to me with a correction. And the reason it was two instead of one is because the first one tried to correct me before and I didn't pay enough attention. They acted as they're supposed to act. And you know what? It was, it was wounding, it was hard, but it was faithful. 
And those two guys are, are beloved to me. And that friendship that I have with both of them will be better from this day forward because they had the courage to talk to me in love. Pray for brothers and sisters like that and be that kind of brother and sister in Christ. This is not a small issue. It is not to be easily dismissed. I believe this is one of the most common failures in the church and that our failure in this area is one of the key contributors to to disunity in this body and in any other body of Christ. You cannot expose a brother or sister's sin to a third party and call it a prayer request. You cannot speak of another brother's wrong against you to someone else under the pretense that you just need someone to sympathize, to understand your pain. God calls it malicious gossip, and it's in the same list as murder in Romans, in Romans 1. I believe we badly shortchange the power of Proverbs 27, 5 and 6 because we don't have the courage to confront when confrontation is necessary. We'd rather talk to anyone except the person who's done the sinning. And God says that's the act of an enemy, not a friend. These verses tell us that the wounds of a true friend are faithful and open rebuke is better than love concealed and they mean what they say. The most powerful and the most durable friendships are forged the same way every other good thing in our life is forged through pain. The best relationships you'll ever have with anyone are the relationships that have been tested. And and the testing that has forged my best relationships with other people and theirs with me has often involved correction in one direction or the other. And that correction is never fun. It's always painful. But when it's done in love, it's very, very good. Think of it this way. Is God's correction a good thing or a bad thing in your life? If it's a good thing, why do we think of the correction of a brother or sister as bad? Why do we think that it's bad for us to have to bring correction to another brother or sister? It's part of sanctification. It's part of the work that God is doing in every one of us. And if it's done in love, it's always a good and desirable thing. Even if we do it imperfectly, let's just do it in love. Do it prayerfully. Do it dependent in, in dependence upon God to make good of it. And you know what? He does. Now, let's go to another point. What do you do when you're a third party to anger? What do you do when you're that person that someone came and talked to about another person's sin or wrongdoing? I'd say it's a safe bet that most of you have heard far more complaints and accusations against other people than you've ever heard against yourself. Guess what? That doesn't mean that nobody's complaining about you. It just means that the people who are telling you their complaints about other people are telling other people their complaints about you. That's a painful reality, but it is very consistent. The same passage applies as the foundational passage, and that's Matthew 18, 15 to 18. The starting point in every case is if your brother sins against you, go and reprove him in private. Verse 16 says that when a third person, that, that when a third person can properly be brought into a complaint is 
when the one with the complaint has already gone to the offender personally, privately, and nothing has happened to resolve the issue. And according to that verse, if you can't bear witness to the sin, you have no business in the conversation. If you can't bear witness to the sin, you have no business in the conversation. Here's another passage from the book of Proverbs that <laughs> it slaps us around a little bit. Proverbs 26:17. Like one who takes a dog by the ears is he who passes by and meddles with strife not belonging to him. Verse 20 of the same chapter, For lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisperer, contention quiets down. And then the opposite. Like charcoal to hot embers and wood to a fire, so is a contentious man to kindle, to fire up strife. When you insert yourself into a conflict that doesn't concern you directly, not only are you not helping matters, you're making them much worse. You're adding fuel to the fire of another man's contention. When someone comes to you with a complaint against another person, beloved, refuse to talk to him further until he takes that complaint to the one who caused the offense. If he's already taken the wrong into account sufficiently to be talking to you about it, he's supposed to be talking to the person who created the offense and to no one else until he has. This is not rocket science, guys. I'm going to give you a quick example from the team that I managed at, in the IT business for many years. One guy in my department, was he was upset, very upset about some things that another coworker had been doing that had impacted him. He got other people on, on the team very upset right along with them without ever talking to the guy who had been doing what he considered wrong and without ever talking to me. When he finally came to me, after he stirred the pot up really good, I immediately told him that I would not listen to his complaints after he got the first few out of his mouth until he went to the person he was upset with and told them to him. He didn't like that idea at all. He thought I was, I was abrogate, I was violating my responsibility as the boss, right? But he did what I said because he wanted to keep his job. And, <laughs> and you know what happened? At first, the guy he brought the complaint to, he went and talked to him privately. At first, the guy he brought the complaint to defended himself some. We tend to do that, right? But then he responded with humility, and he fixed what he had done wrong. And those two guys were fast friends from that day forward. See, their relationship was better, not worse, because the complaint was brought directly to the offender. This stuff works because it's true. <laughs> and if we can put it to, to work in the workplace, we most surely had better be putting it to work in the church of Jesus Christ, where we're commanded to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The last thing... We talked about requiring the offender to go to directly, uh, offended to go directly to the offender. The third thing to do when you're the one that the complaint comes to is don't talk to anyone else about it. He who covers a transgression seeks love. He who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. That means what it says. Proverbs 17.9. If someone does come to you about someone else's sin before talking to the offender, 
then for Christ's sake, literally, don't talk to anyone else about it until the offender has heard the complaint and had opportunity to repent. Is that complicated? No, it's hard. It's not complicated. If you don't do it, and you go and tell other people about that wrong that you you heard about, you will separate intimate friends. That's how it works. All right, let's just recap briefly. If you have a complaint against a brother that you believe is worthy of talking about in the first place, talk about it first with the person you believe has committed the wrong and don't talk about it to anyone else until you have. And bear in mind the exceptions we discussed. Don't say a word until you have humbled yourself before God and ask Him to use the correction for His glory and for the offender's well-being. And if someone comes to you with a complaint against another, refuse to discuss it until he follows that same God-ordained course of action. It's really not hard. Not, Not complicated. It is hard. But we need to do it. If you find this approach too constraining, too burdensome, or too impractical, then you might want to consider why it is that you find it burdensome to do what God says is loving toward your brother. And why you find it burdensome to do what you absolutely would want your brother to do to you. We've all violated this principle. I certainly have. How about if we all resolve to stop violating it from this day forward. And when we stumble, let's get back up and get with God's program, not with ours. We can do better. I believe with all my heart that we have to forbear with one another when any among us is struggling to do what God requires. We all struggle to do what God requires. Lord knows I do. Every day. And that's why it is such a marvelous grace that God is indeed slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, steadfast covenant love. But beloved, his forbearance does not change our assignment, not for one minute. If I ever ask you to back off from holding me accountable to what God commands me to do because I find it too burdensome, or at least too burdensome to do today, you have my permission to lovingly slap me around. I'm serious. We are called to be all in today. To reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. To count ourselves to be slaves to righteousness and to God today. Not to be satisfied with compromised obedience until some later date because we're not ready to do what God commands now. I want to mention one last thing that my brother Leonard Luton um, brought up with me this week. I don't have a slide on it. It's anger toward God. What do you do when you're angry with God? There's some examples, I think, in the Psalms and some other places where people were angry with God. God gave us a real definitive answer. Just read Job especially the last couple of chapters of Job. Job, if anybody in history that was a mortal man, a sinful man, ever had reason to be angry with God, it was Job. Right? God took from him his 
family, his wealth, his health, and humbled him and laid him low. And for a while Job complained. And in Job chapter 40, verse 1, the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, God says, and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Do you have an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like His? And then he goes on and he talks about the acts, His acts in creation. Mighty, sovereign, powerful, determinative things that no man can question or undo. Beloved, for us to be angry with God is like a child being angry with his father because his dad won't let him dangle his toes off the edge of a cliff. To fully understand why God does all that he does, we would have to be God. And fortunately, that is not going to happen. God is all that he is at all times. We have trouble just being one thing Our only legitimate response to the God who has made himself known to us in creation and through his word and through the living word, Jesus Christ, is to honor him as God and always to be thankful. Rejoice in the Lord always. Pray at all times. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God concerning you in Christ Jesus. May we always... (laughs) With every thought that we have of God, be thankful, be grateful to the one who plucked us out of darkness, brought us into the light, and put us in the kingdom of his beloved Son forever. Loving Father, we thank you for your amazing grace, and we thank you for making us the objects of that grace in Christ alone. We pray if there's anyone here who has not trusted fully and only in Jesus Christ as the one and only provision for our sin, the one who paid it all at the cross, that that person would do so right now, right where he or she sits today. He would take you at your word and receive life. We pray, Father, that you would burn these things into our hearts. We pray we would not go on doing the things that we have been doing wrong in this regard. We pray that our anger would be submitted to you and, Father, that we would know what you have given to us in Christ and it would, com- it would radically, radically impact the way we treat one another. And we pray this, that your body may be built up and matured in Christ. We pray it that the name of Jesus may be exalted among men. We pray it for his sake and in his name.